Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Ed Travers, one of the teaching pastors here at LifePoint. I just wanna welcome you online, uh, especially if you're with us for the first time, a great big welcome to you. Uh, I was told that last Sunday, 7,700 people listened online. That's fantastic. We're so grateful to have all of you listening in with us. Um, wanna say to you that we're in a series called Daybreak that we're um, looking at the last seven days of Jesus' life uh, before the resurrection. And typically, uh, we talk about the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And that's true. It's a great day to talk about it. But the reality is that the resurrection is reflected in our everyday lives all the time. The one thing I wanna say as I get ready to start this, uh, this message for you is that I want you to listen all the way till the end because they're gonna do one of my favorite worship songs at the end. And it's gonna be fantastic. Now, as I was preparing for the message, I was thinking about when I was a kid, uh, where I grew up, we had this tree in our backyard. It was a mulberry tree. And one time a year during the summer, uh, these mulberries would bloom and they were so amazing. They became so just ripe and full of juice. They were dark purple. Uh, and, but you can only eat them one time of the year. I was thinking about that because Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he goes to a fig tree and there's no fruit on it. In fact, this story really points to the resurrection. And maybe if you're listening in and, and you're a Christian, you've been a Christian a long time, or maybe you're really just kind of curious about Christianity. Maybe you're asking the question, how does a fig tree point to the resurrection? Well, I hope that you'll listen in as, as, we, as that unfolds for you. The first point I wanna point out to you is this, is that we need to lean in even when we don't understand. If you have a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 11. You can follow along in your app notes. Uh, but in this chapter, let me explain what's happening. The day before, Jesus and his disciples had entered into Jerusalem and all of the people came out and they were waving these big palm branches at him and, and saying, Hosanna, uh, and they were ready to make him their king. And this is what happened the very next day. In chapter 11, verse 12 of Mark, it says this. Now on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to find it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So here's Jesus, he's walking up uh, and he sees a fig tree. He looks for figs, there's no figs, so he curses it. I'm trying to imagine how this went down in conversation. Imagine Mark is having a conversation with Peter. You know, and Mark's got his pencil and he's ready to write down the notes. And he says, all right, Peter, what happened next? You came into Jerusalem, what happened the next day? And he says, well, uh, you know, we were walking up to the Mount of Olives and, and there was that big fig tree. You know where the fig tree is? And, and you know, Mark's like, yeah, yeah, I know where the tree is. Well, well Jesus goes up to that tree because he's hungry. And I, I could have told him, you know, there's no figs. It's not the season for that. You know, but the last time I tried to tell him something about fish, it didn't go well. So I just kept my mouth shut. He goes up there, there's no figs on it. And he curses the fig tree. And I'm sure Mark is thinking, well, why would he do that? That makes no sense. Here's the thing, Mark. It wasn't that long ago that James and John and I, we were up on the mountain and Jesus turned into this brilliant figure. Um, we saw him for who he really is. And Moses was there and Elijah was there and we heard this voice. And the voice said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Since then, I don't really know what to think, except I know to trust in what he said. And what he did is he cursed that tree. I didn't understand. You know, I bring it up because the reality is all of us in a situation, we can look at the circumstances with this virus and how it's affecting our country and, and what's our future gonna be. 
And we don't know exactly what God's doing. We don't have all of the answers. But I think the lesson that you see in this first part of the passage is absolutely true, that we need to lean in to the word of God. We need to trust in him at a time like this. And I would say to you, uh, if you don't have a Bible reading plan, now's the perfect time to start, to lean in and start to understand what it is that he's trying to say to you. And the reality is that you're gonna see how, how this kind of unfolds, that what happens in the temple that Kale's gonna talk about, um, and as Dean kind of closes and Adam talks about prayer, there's really a bigger picture happening with this tree. But sometimes we don't understand in the moment. You know, I was thinking um, about a story. My, I was in my late 20s and I was working for a sales company and I was doing really well. I was their top salesman and uh, I started praying and I just sensed that this is not where God wanted me to go with my life. So in my prayer time, I sensed that God was, wanted me to start my own company, to branch out, and therefore God would be the owner of my company and, and all my time would belong to him. So I put in my two weeks notice and I left my company and I you know, started a company and, and it went along. And, and after about a year into my company, I, in my prayer time, I just sensed that God wanted me to call my boss and apologize to him. And I thought, I don't have anything to apologize for. I didn't do anything wrong. But the truth is I never told him what I was doing. I just put in my notice and left. And I thought, you know, I'm gonna tell him. So I prayed about it. I called up my old boss. He answered the phone and I said, hey, I just wanna let you know this is what I'm doing. And I know I didn't tell you that before. I was just afraid that, you know, you would fire me if I told you that. And I'm really sorry. Um, I believe in what I'm doing. Here's why I'm doing it. And I explained to him about what God was doing in me. And um, he hung up on me. And then a couple weeks later, I got a letter from his lawyer threatening to sue my new company. And I'm, I'm thinking, God, why, why would you lead me to start a company so that you could be my boss and I would serve you with my time and you could be my success in any way that that forms and, and then you, you want me to apologize to the guy and he's so offended by that, he wants to sue me. What are you doing? I called my lawyer and he's a friend of mine. He, he's willing to represent me for free. He said, Ed, you've done nothing wrong based on everything you've done and the problem is I can't help you because your non-compete clause says you have, to, you have to do this battle in another state and I can't represent you there. And the thing is, even if you were to win, you'll lose because you'll have to spend so much money to battle this. He could bankrupt you. And I thought, God, what are you doing? But in that moment, I just prayed. I said, God, I'm gonna lean into you. You have asked me to trust you with my life and therefore I'm submitting my life and my future to you. I assumed that God was gonna do something bigger than just that. That maybe he was trying to work into my boss's life and, or maybe he was doing something and just, teaching me to trust. But in either case, I didn't know the answer. I just knew at that time I needed to lean in and to trust in what God has said. You know, the next passage, uh, verse 15 and 16 says this. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Uh, as Ed mentioned, the temple and the fig tree, are, they seem maybe unrelated, but they're connected in the sense that the temple, what Jesus does here at the temple is another just example of the lack of fruit in Israel, the lack of faith there, and, and sort of a judgment of Israel. Um, as we mentioned last week, uh, it's the Passover, and so there are thousands of Jews, if not tens of thousands of Jews who have gathered, who have pilgrimaged back to Jerusalem to the temple to worship and to sacrifice there and to pray, not only Jews, but also uh, Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles. Gentiles, so outsiders who have come to try to worship uh, the Lord. And Jesus walks in 
And he sees uh, the exchanging of money, uh, currency exchange, because you had to have a certain type of money to pay the temple tax. He sees animals being sold because you had to have a certain type of animal for the, uh, for the sacrifice at the temple. He sees uh, all of this going on, people just walking through the temple with their goods. And he goes, uh, I've said it this way in the past, he sort of goes Indiana Jesus on everybody. And so John gives us a detail where it says he makes, he makes a whip out of cords and just starts driving people, literally whipping people out of the temple, flips over the tables and just goes kind of berserk on everybody. And you're thinking, why? Like, why is Jesus so angry in this moment? If I were to put it into a simple phrase, I might say it this way, that Jesus is angry at the coldness of Israel's heart toward God and the coldness of Israel's heart toward outsiders. That he's angry at the coldness of Israel's heart toward God and the coldness of their heart toward outsiders. And those two things are very uh, related. But uh, there's a follow-up question to that, at least in my mind, because you're reading that and you see Jesus get angry and you think, but man, it's, it's religious activity. Like they're gathered for a giant church service, basically. You've got thousands of people who are coming to the temple uh, to worship. How can God be mad at that? And I think what we see in the scriptures is that God is angry or displeased when you see a lot of religious activity, but no spiritual intimacy. When you see a lot of religious activity, but the people's hearts, when their lips praise God, but their hearts are far from him. In fact, in the Old Testament, at one point in time, through one of the prophets, God says this, I hate your feasts. I hate, he tells the people of Israel this. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Some uh, Bible translations actually use the word stench. That God looks at the people of Israel and says, because your hearts are so far from me, because your actions are unjust, because there's no righteousness and yet you're here going through the religious motions. He says, it's like a stench. I can't stand the smell of this. And that's what's going on here. And you say, I mean, why? It's because of this. At the time, uh, the temple was the symbol of, of really God's glory on earth. This is where God manifested his presence. This is where people came. And it was supposed to be a, a house of prayer, as Jesus is going to say. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. People are supposed to be able to come here and worship and really magnify the Lord. Not just Jews, but people from every nation are supposed to come here and lift the Lord up high. And what's happening instead is that Jesus walks in and he sees people exchanging money, exchanging currency. He sees um, people selling animals, right? There are pigeons and probably sheep and it's smelly and there's poop everywhere. And I mean, just picture this for a moment. People are coming here to pray and to worship. People are coming for a church service. You got to picture the scene. Someone's on their knees right now going, Lord. And then a pigeon flies by their head. It's loud, it's smelly. I told um, a couple of months ago, I was teaching this at, at our Delaware campus and I said, guys, it's really like you came for church, you came to encounter the living God and it's some sort of mix between uh, the Wall Street Stock Exchange and the Delaware County Fair. Like those two things just clash. That's what you got. You walk in, there's animals, poop, smelly, it's noisy. And again, this is supposed to be the house of prayer. And so when Jesus walks in, I think um, he's angry. The, the zeal for the Lord consumes him because he's seeing this scene that's so opposite of what it should be. And it's an indictment really of Israel and their lack of faith. It's an indictment specifically on the religious leaders because they've allowed or even encouraged, they're taking advantage of people, probably getting a cut from the proceeds, but also... This is happening, it's very uh, important. Some, some of the other gospel writers tell us this happens in the court of the Gentiles. And there's a phrase in your notes, this is the phrase that I put in there, the insiders had ceased to care about the outsiders. 
The insiders had ceased to care about the outsiders. I said, uh, Israel's heart's not only cold towards God, right? Not only is, are their lips praising him, but their hearts are far from him. Their hearts also have become far from the outsider. There's no love for the outsider. So this scene, all the money exchanging, all the selling of animals, it's happening in the court of the Gentiles. So in the temple, they had sort of multiple areas of the, of the uh, temple. And depending on who you were, if you were a Jew, you could go past the court of the Gentiles. There was a court of the Israelites. That's where if you were a male, a Jewish male, you could go there. There was a court uh, of the women. If you were an Israelite woman, you could go there. But the outer court was the court of the Gentiles. That's the only place that if you were an outsider, if you weren't a Jew, that's the only place that you could come and worship God and pray to the Lord. And that's the place that they set up uh, the Delaware County Fair and the Wall Street Stock, Stock Exchange. That's the place where they let this happen. So you got a picture, if you're, if you're a Gentile, if you're an outsider and you come to worship the Lord and maybe you've traveled a long distance, what does this communicate to you? You walk into this noisy, smelly place. What it communicates to you is, we don't care about you. It'd be like if you were new to church, new to Christianity, and you walked into our building on a Sunday morning, we said, man, we really weren't expecting you. Um, I guess you can sit in the closet over there because you can't come in here. That's what it communicates. The, the hardness of Israel's heart toward anyone who really wasn't like them, which is such a tragedy because they were meant to be a bridge. They were meant to be uh, reflecting God's glory to all the nations and really a bridge for people to come and know the Lord. But instead of being a bridge, they're putting up hurdles between people and God. And I think rightly, it makes Jesus angry. He sees their hardness of heart, not only toward the Lord, but toward the outsider. And I said last week, um, it's easy sometimes to judge them, to look back and say, man, we would never do that. But I think we have to be careful because it is the tendency, I think the natural tendency of a Christian, the natural tendency of a church uh, over time to just begin to look inward, to stop caring about the outsider. And I would also say in a, in a crisis like what we're in right now, it's tempting and normal. And I think there's a natural tendency to look inward, to say, man, when everything's falling apart, I got to look after me and I got to take care of mine, right? Me, my family. And hear me say, uh, there's nothing wrong with that in the sense of you got to take care of you. You got to take care of your family. Uh, a week ago, Morgan and I, we made sure we went to Kroger, right? To just get the essentials. We knew the, the grocery rush was happening. And so we said, look, we got to go. We got to make sure we take care of our family. We've got three small kids. So we went and we got the essentials, um, you know, pizza rolls. Morgan has her chocolate-covered strawberries, uh, blueberries, actually, chocolate-covered blueberries she likes, uh, Lucky Charms, and my English breakfast tea. So we're good, right? Like, we got that stuff. We've got the essentials. Um, actually, one of our life group members came over later uh, that day. Just so cool to see God's provision. She showed up unannounced, didn't tell us, and she had bought us a ton of stuff from Costco, brought over food, um, and I loved this. Um, she brought over a ton, of course, of toilet paper. And I just thought, just like our Lord, right, in the great uh, toilet paper crisis of 2020, right, that he had provided, right, toilet paper for us when we weren't even thinking in that direction. But my point is this, there's a tendency for all of us, I think, to look inward and to say, I have to take care of me. I gotta take care of my family, especially in times like these. And I would say, do that. Let's look after one another, but also, Right now is such a great opportunity for us to look to the outsider, to be a bridge, 
We've got the hope of glory in us. It's Christ in us. We have a peace that surpasses all understanding in us because of Christ. And right now is such a good opportunity for us to meet needs and to be a bridge, to look to the outsider and to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And Dean is gonna talk at the end about just practical ways that we're doing that as a church, that you can be a part of that. But one thing I'd encourage you with is this, pray. We talk about who's your one, right? Who's one person in your life that you could be praying for right now to come to know and love Jesus? As far as I know, no one has been uh, uh, infected with the coronavirus through prayer, right? So pray for those people. Pray for that one person in your life who doesn't know and love Jesus and look at your own heart and say, Lord, I don't want my heart to grow cold toward you. I don't want my heart to grow cold toward the outsider. I wanna love them like Christ. So let's pray for that one. Adam's gonna come and talk about this verse here. Verse 17, it says this, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Kayla and I are are pretty good friends, and if you've gotten to know uh, Dean or Ed or or Kayla and I at all, you know that we're all pretty competitive, And, and Kayla, I just want you to know that I heard what you just said, and Challenge accepted. And so if Kale gets coronavirus in three or four days, we know that God can. I'm just kidding. I, I, would, not, I would not do that. And so, so we're going to make just one observation and ask two questions about verse 17 in Mark chapter 11. And the observation that we're going to make is that Jesus wants people to pray. Jesus clearly, he says, hey, my, my house is supposed to be, it shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And it's clear when we look at this that Jesus wants people to pray. And so the two questions we wanna ask about that are, are why? why? Why does Jesus want people to pray? And, and how? How does Jesus want people to pray? And so, so first, why? So why does Jesus want me? Why does Jesus want you to pray? And the answer, I think, is that Jesus knows that we need God. Jesus knows that I need God, and Jesus knows that, that you need God. God. We need God's presence. We need God's provision. And Jesus knows that prayer is one of the primary ways that God has given to us to access and to seek both God's presence and and God's provision. And And so here's the challenge that I experience, and it's also, I think, the challenge that you experience as well. If I were to sit down with you, which we can't do right now in any coffee shop or restaurant, but if we were to sit down maybe on like Zoom, and I were to ask you the question, do you need God? I, th- I think most of us, maybe even all of us, we, we know the answer. We know that the answer is, well, yeah, I, 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 do, I do need God. I, I recognize that I, that I need God. But I think if I were to, to press a little bit more and ask you a, a follow-up question, and if I were to ask you, well, do you need God some of the time or most of the time or, or all of the time? Here's the problem that I experienced, and and I'm assuming that you're like me. I know the answer is all of the time, but I live like the answer is some of the time. And one of the things that that I think that God is doing, at least in me, and honestly, I'm praying that God is doing in in you through this coronavirus and how it's disrupting all of our lives, and it's not good. I'm praying that it'll it'll end soon, but I'm also confident and also experiencing the, the spiritual fruit that God is bearing in my own life, and God is using this moment and this disruption of normal for me to remind me that I don't need God just some of the time. I don't need God just most of the time, but, but I, I would say we, we, we need God all 
of the time. And so, so why does Jesus want us to pray? Well, part of the reason why is because Jesus knows that we need God. We need his presence. We need his provision. And prayer is one of the primary ways that the Lord has given to us to, to avail ourselves of that. And so why does Jesus want us to pray? Because we need, we need God. But, but how does Jesus want us to pray? And I want to point out, so in Luke chapter 11, there's this really interesting interaction where, where the disciples have, have probably been observing Jesus praying, and they say to Jesus, Master, teach us to pray. And if you go read that section, what you're not going to see is Jesus say, doesn't matter. Do what, what, whatever you want to do. Jesus, do that. It doesn't. And Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, well, well when you pray, I want you to pray like this, and he begins to teach them in Luke chapter 11 what we call the Lord's Prayer. And so, so how does Jesus want us to pray? What I'm gonna say is Jesus wants us to pray in him or in his name. We see this we taught in John chapter 14 where, among other places, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. There's no way to the Father except through me. Later on in that same chapter in the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, Jesus talks about us going to the Father and asking for things in the Father's name. And so how does Jesus want us to pray? Jesus wants us to pray in him because there's no access to the Father out, outside of Christ. And I, and I want to remind you that, that if you have repented of your sin and placed your trust, your faith in God's son, Jesus the Christ, that in Christ we are new and part of that is God the Father adopts us as his sons and daughters. We are his and as his, we can come with confidence into his presence. And I know if you're like me, sometimes I feel like I get to come to God in prayer, I get to approach the throne of grace because of my words being good or because I've morally improved recently or I've done something good recently and that's the way that I access the presence of God. And Jesus is all the time reminding us, no, 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 you don't access the presence of God because of your works. You access the presence of God because of my work my shed blood on the cross and my resurrection is the way that you can come with confidence into the presence of God. And so if you're wired a little bit like me and maybe you, you forget that sometimes, I want to remind you first that as we pray in Jesus' name, and yes, he, he tells us how, that we don't get to pray with confidence and approach God's throne with confidence because of anything that's rooted in us, but rather because of Jesus and, and who he is and what's he has done, and so in Christ, we're his, and we approach with confidence. But the second thing I'll say, if you're wondering, well, how do I, how, how do I pray in, in Christ? How do I do that in, in him? What I'll say is we let his word to us shape our words to him. That if you want to learn to pray in Christ, we let his word to us shape our words to him. And I just wanna share with you really briefly um, three ways that, that I've been doing this recently and as God has grown me in, in my personal prayer life. And, and I hope that God uses these two to encourage you as I hope you take steps in prayer over the next week. And so the first is a lot of us, because of our upbringing, we, we have the Lord's Prayer memorized. And so I, I would encourage you, what, what I've been doing is, is once a day, I will physically get on my knees Sometimes it's in my office, sometimes it's in my bedroom. I'm usually picking a place with carpet in my home. And I just take you know, the 30 seconds, the 60 seconds, whatever it takes. And I just kneel before my loving heavenly father and my Lord Jesus. And I pray the Lord's Prayer. And one of the, one of the coolest moments for me has been as we've been trying to teach our, our four young children the Lord's Prayer. Uh, just last week I, I was doing that and I, I had gotten on my knees and my six-year-old daughter Annie uh, came in and uh, she saw that I was just about to start, and instead of interrupting me and asking me to watch a show or whatever she was gonna ask me to do, 
she got down on her knees with me and she held my hand and, and we prayed the Lord's Prayer together. And it was really, really, really good. And so, so how, what is one way that we can use the word of God, God's word to us to shape our words back to him? I would encourage you to have a, a daily habit, a weekly habit, whatever it looks like, of simply praying the Lord's Prayer uh, back to your loving Heavenly Father. The second is related to uh, this book called Praying the Bible, which is mercifully short. It's like 88 pages. It's by Donald S. Whitney. Would highly encourage you to go check this out. And what he talks about, what I've been doing this, this calendar year, is praying through the Psalms in particular, but using God's word, again, to shape our words back to God. And so just let me, let me give you an example. Tomorrow is the 23rd of March. And so what he would recommend is flip to Psalm 23 or maybe 53 or 83, just multiples you know, of 30 added on 23. And so let, let's just look at Psalm 23. Some of you may already know this Psalm. Some of you, it's unfamiliar. But the opening line of Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so tomorrow, I'll pray. And I'll say, God, thank you so much that you're my shepherd. God, thank you so much that, you, that you're walking with me right now, even though things are a little bit disrupted and things are scary. God, thank you that you, you provide for all of my, my needs. The, the psalm continues and it's talking about how God is walking alongside of me in green pastures and he's asking me to lay down and, and you just allow the words of that psalm to shape your prayer back to God. And so I, I would encourage you, you, you can reach out to us uh, with some of the next steps uh, on the website, or you can just go buy this book. Uh, I'd encourage you to, to, to try to pray that way as you allow God's word to us to shape your words to him. And the last thing I'll say is, is sing. As we allow God's word to us to shape our words to him, if you read the Psalms, what you're gonna see is over and over and over again, we are commanded, we are told to sing. And especially during this kind of odd season right now where it's harder for us to, to gather publicly because of the coronavirus and, and sing together as a group, I think it's important more now than ever before to you know, get on your Amazon playlist or iTunes or whatever you use and just spend some, some time singing to your Lord Jesus and make that your, your prayer to him. We need God. And we need him all the time. And Jesus, he, he wants us to experience God's presence and provision and to pray in his name. And I hope that starting today or tomorrow that you begin to take steps to grow in prayer. Let me read Dean's text. Mark 11, 18 through 22 says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, him being Jesus, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Thanks, Adam. You know, as Adam reads the end of the text, as we head now to the end, really, of Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life. The disciples and Jesus, they head out of the city, and they notice that the fig tree that Jesus cursed earlier in the day now has withered. And the interesting thing about this miracle, of all the miracles that Jesus ever did, this is the only one where it's non-beneficial. This is the only miracle that Jesus does that seemingly doesn't, doesn't help anyone at all. Or does it? See, if you read Matthew, the writer of Matthew's gospel, if you read what he says about the end of Tuesday, Jesus makes a comment, and I'm assuming that the comment that Jesus makes comes at the end of Tuesday after all these events 
have occurred and kind of lined up. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 32 and 33. Speaking to the disciples, he says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that it is summer. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. So let's just kind of summarize, right? Uh, Beginning of the day on Tuesday, Jesus and the disciples, they head into the city and on the way in, Jesus curses a fig tree. Then they head into the temple, like Kale talked to us about. Jesus overturns the temples and the money changers, and he has this, this interaction there in the temple. And then at some point after that occurs, Jesus talks to the disciples, what Adam just said to us about, about prayer and the intent of his house to be a place where people could experience, could experience God's presence. And then at some point, towards the end of the day, they're heading out of the city, and the same fig tree that Jesus curses on the way into the city in the morning is now withered, almost like, almost like a tree would be in winter, and then at some point, Jesus says to the disciples, listen, learn this lesson, the lesson of the fig tree, is that even though it looks like winter, remember that spring is on the way. And he ties that to himself. He says, just so, just remember, whenever you see these signs, what signs? Whenever you see the withered tree, just remember, Things seem dark. Just remember, there are signs, and those signs point to the fact that spring is on the way. So whenever you put all that together and you try and interpret it and make sense of it, what, what is Jesus trying to say? I, I personally think it's, it's pretty clear that he's referencing his death and his resurrection. The way that I would say it to you is that death on the tree means life for me. In other words, what Jesus is saying is just like that tree is withered and it seems like it's done. It seems like the tree is is finished. We all know that in the middle of winter, even though things seem dark, spring's coming. We look around right now and the trees don't have foliage. They don't have leaves. But we know they're not gonna stay that way. We know that at some point, at some point spring is gonna come. And so I think what Jesus is saying, he's identifying himself with that tree. Matter of fact, even in the New Testament, uh, later on, as Paul writes, Jesus is the one, he became the curse for us. Death on the tree means life for me. That Jesus, when he went to the cross, he took your sin, my sin, all of our sin on his shoulders, and he became cursed for us. And in becoming the curse of sin, he pays the penalty for your sin, pays the penalty for my sin, but he doesn't stop there. It's not left there. Because three days later, what happens? Spring's coming. The signs were there. The fact that Jesus dies on the cross, the fact that things seemed incredibly dark. As a matter of fact, so dark, right, that while he's on the cross, there's this deep darkness for three hours and people seem to lose hope because they thought he was the Messiah and everything seems bleak. But Jesus says, all that is is a sign. Spring is coming. And three days later, Spring hope arose out of that tomb as Jesus was miraculously raised from the dead, came back to life. So, so what? So how does that impact you and me? Well, every day should reflect the resurrection. In what way? If you understand that because Jesus beat death, that means you're gonna beat death, you know that ultimately a victory has been won. Ultimately, the price has been paid for your sin and my sin. And that means that forever and ever, God's gonna restore all things. We're gonna get to be part of that. If you know that, you can be free. 
You can be free to love. You can be free to love outsiders just as much as you love insiders like Kale's talking about. You can be free. You can be free to pray, just like Adam was saying. You're free to approach God no matter what your sins are, no matter what you've, what you've done, no matter uh, how bad you think it is, how far you feel from God, you're free to approach God because it's not based on your performance. It's based on Jesus's performance for you on the cross and being miraculously raised from the dead. You're free. Not because you have to do those things, but you can become new. Your heart can actually be changed, transformed to become the kind of person who wants to do those things. When my oldest daughter, Sydney, when she was in high school, transitioning from uh, freshman year to sophomore year, the beginning of her sophomore year, she'd played basketball for about six or seven years. Consecutively, I had the privilege of coaching her along the way. And um, that was something that we did together that we really enjoyed. But she got to the beginning of her sophomore year and she comes in and sits down and says to me one day, she says, Dad, I kind of want to talk to you about basketball. I said, great, what do you, what, what you want to talk about? She said, Dad, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but I, I just don't love basketball anymore. Not the way that I used to. And she said, I, I hope it's okay that I want to tell you that I don't think I'm gonna play basketball this year. Rather, I'd rather sing in some choirs and be involved in theater and do some, some other things. She said, I just don't love basketball. I looked at her and I said, honey, it's okay that you don't love basketball, but I do, so you should play for me and my sake. No, I didn't say that to her. I said, listen, do what you love. If you wanna do choir and you wanna do music and you wanna do other things and you wanna pursue God through the artistic gifts that God has given to you, Great, go do it. And today, she's no longer a sophomore in high school. She's a sophomore in college. And I wouldn't trade what God is doing in my daughter's life today and how she's using her gifts, how she's involved in her spiritual or biblical community uh, at the college that she attends and the way that God is using her to reach people that otherwise aren't being reached on her. I wouldn't trade. If you offered my daughter a college basketball scholarship today, I wouldn't take it. I'm that grateful for God's activity in her life. She's not doing that because she has to, but she's doing that because of what God is doing in her. Perfect, absolutely not. Growing, following, pursuing Christ. Yes, and I think sometimes we look at God that way. We kind of look at God like, okay, God, I'll do the Christian thing because I, I should do the Christian thing because that's what I ought to do. But you can become new. Because of the resurrection, you're free. You're free to serve. I got together with some of the folks in my life group and some other folks from our church this week, and we made 250 brown bag lunches, took them downtown, shared them with one of our mission partners down there, United Faith International Baptist Church. Reggie Hayes is the pastor there uh, downtown, and Columbus does a fantastic job of reaching people. We all got together. We made Brown bag lunches, my family did. We made 25 of them together at our house. We took them down and he's gonna distribute those. Actually today, he's, he's distributing those lunches to people who are in very distressed neighborhoods and difficult, difficult situations. Do we do that because we have to? No. Because God is doing something in us and I hope God is doing something in us as a body, in our church to say in the middle of a crisis like this, what we wanna do is we wanna do what our core values say, we wanna become servants. We wanna help, not hide. 
So if that's you, if you sense that, that God is doing that in you, I would just encourage you, there's a, there's a button if you're on uh, Facebook Live or if you're following through the app notes, there's a, a missions button there. And if you'll click that button, it'll show you all of the opportunities there are. So I would hope that your life group would choose to get together sometime during these weeks and during this season and serve together. Or maybe your family would look on those uh, opportunities that are there and you say, you know what, we're gonna take this one and we're gonna choose to serve and sacrifice in the middle of a crisis. Why? Because we're free. Because no matter what happens in the future, we know that ultimately God has secured a victory in the person of Christ and that frees us up to serve because we're new. You know, it's, it's interesting about the fig tree. There's a, more than one scholar has connected it all the way back to the book of Genesis in the beginning of the Bible. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned there and they, they kind of welcomed the original sin uh, into our lives, into scripture, they try and make up for that sin in kind of a weird way. You remember what they did? They covered themselves up, or at least they tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. But fig leaves weren't gonna cut it. God had to sacrifice an animal and take the skin of that animal and make Adam and Eve clothes and when he does that, he's covering their, their sin. Now, there's another word in the Bible that's that same word for cover. It's the word atone. And so what Jesus did on the cross is he makes an atonement for your sin and my sin so that our sins, no matter how bad they are, no matter how often we've committed them, whether it was years ago, yesterday, that Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross, it covers our sin. So if you're watching uh, with us today and you're not a Christian, you can take that step today of applying the sacrifice of Jesus to be a covering for your sin. I met somebody last week uh, who said, you know what, last week online, you asked us to pray and I prayed online uh, to receive Christ and she came, we gave her one of the, your next 30 days books to help her with some next steps as she begins this new relationship. But the way that she said it to me was, she said, when you prayed online, I prayed with you. And when you asked people to raise their hands, I raised my hand in my living room. And maybe that's you today. Maybe through this crisis, God has been surfacing the reality that you know you need, you know you need him. Not just some days, Adam said it very well, but you need him every day. If that's what God is stirring in you, I would love to help you take that step of following Christ today. I'm gonna pray, and it's not some magic prayer, not some magic words that you say. It's really more about the intent of your heart to follow Christ, to turn away from your sin, to repent, and to give him authority in your life. If you'd like to take that step today, I'd love to invite you to do that right now. You can pray something like this. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming and being the atonement for my sins. Thank you for covering my sins with your sacrifice on the cross. And today, Jesus, I wanna align my life with your resurrection. I wanna have that confidence of knowing that because you beat death, I have hope. Jesus, today I wanna to give you authority in my life. I want you to be the leader and I'll be the follower. Thank you for this great salvation. In Jesus' name we pray.